This time on Poll Hub, we can't ignore the elephant in the room, so we're digging back through all of our polling on Donald Trump, or at least most of it, to help answer the question, what will his indictment mean to his prospects for retaking the White House? Then a staggering statistic caught our attention recently. Americans are dying almost three years younger on average than they were in 2019. And the pandemic may only be a small part of the reason why. We are unpacking the data with an expert on longevity. And we end with our far out fun fact. We're calling it close encounters of the Lee kind. Well, at least I'm calling it that. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Mary Griffith. And I am Lee Maringoff. So everybody is in the business of uh, of guessing what's going to happen, predicting what's going to happen after uh, Donald Trump was indicted in New York State Court on 34 felony counts related to his alleged payoffs to kill off an unflattering story or several in the lead up to the 2016 election. Um, so we're going to back up our speculation with some data. That is what we do. We're going to look back at data that we've been uh, collecting since 2016, when Donald Trump first rode down the golden escalator um, and announced that he was running for president to try and get at a, a data-driven answer to the question, will this make any difference? Before we do that, though, Lee, do you think it's going to make any difference that he's been indicted? Well, I think it makes a, a big difference to Donald Trump, and I think that was rather visible uh, when just, you know, he, he certainly wasn't high-fiving the, 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 the crowd as he came on by. Um, with Donald Trump, the, the unpredictable is about the only thing you can predict with certainty. And obviously, this is also being driven by legal proceedings, which is not necessarily in his control, um, where he's been able in the previous times, uh, where he's gone into trouble, he's sort of, you know, sort of playing the shell game, where he's moving the, the, the pieces around. This is, uh, you know, this is another level of involvement. Um, where it ends up legally is anyone's guess. Um, we do have a pretty good sense that this isn't the first and only indictment. Uh, there's a lot of other investigations, uh, not the least of which is Georgia uh, and the election interference uh, alleged. And, uh, you know, there's the... Uh, taking of the classified documents, and then the whole situation with uh, his involvement in um, in the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection. Um, so we're going to be getting lots of news. And as far as the political atmosphere is concerned, Donald Trump is again front and center for the next presidential election. Um, and, you know, this is creates all kinds of issues for um, you know, what do the other candidates do? And also, what does the, Joe Biden's White House do? Uh, I think it's fairly clear they're letting you know Trump just dominate the news. Uh, the old lesson, I guess, still applies to some degree. If someone's in trouble, don't get in the middle of it. So let's dig into the numbers a little bit. Our most recent survey, February of 2023, which asked about um, former President Trump's uh, favorability. 68% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents had a favorable impression of Trump. Um, and according to our trend data, that's the lowest it's been since 2016. One thing I do want to point out in that data, though, is that when we look back to November of 2022, that is the last time that we asked favorability among this group, President Trump's um, favorable rating was 11 points higher. So while his favorable rating has been above 70%, for uh, most of the time between 2016 and now, 
if there was a precipitous drop between um, November of late last year and the last time we asked, which was in February of 2023. Um, we take a look at, um, uh, compare that to um, Ron DeSantis's favorable rating, also among Republicans or Republican-leaning independents. 66% of that group had a favorable impression of the governor. And what do you think? Do you think that this is an opening? Does this spell trouble for uh, for the former president as we look at the um, primaries coming up? Well, I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying with him being down 11 points from our poll in November. But I also look at the unfavorable. And I think that's an important distinction here is when we talk to Republicans and Republican leaning independents since November of 2016, Donald Trump's unfavorable number has never been above 25 percent. And it's at 25 percent. So, yeah, it's high. But it's never been above 25 percent. It's never been below 18 percent. So I, I think, at least from looking at our data, and, and I, I dug through this and I looked at it in a million ways to Sunday, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what we could say about the changes that might result from this. No matter what's happened since, since we first started polling him in 20, 2015, really, but really since he ended the race in 2016, no matter what's happened, the Republican base seems to have only grown, grown stronger. It is his party. And I just there's nothing in this data that seems to suggest that anything's going to change because of this. I think it may make a huge difference in a general election if he actually gets to a general election. But, Lee, I just I mean, nothing has impacted this Republican base. And I, I don't see how this does either, based on what we've seen in our data. I know the Republicans are, you know. The, the Republican wannabes have all sort of decided how are we going to deal with this? And so they're sort of like not, you know, attacking Donald Trump, but they're attacking the prosecution. No matter what is going on in Donald Trump's political and legal life, doesn't really want to take him on and confront him directly. Well, in terms of the Trump standing, when we take a look at our most recent national survey um, with NPR and the PBS NewsHour, we specifically asked about the investigations into Trump. And what's interesting is that, yes, Jay, 100 percent, the Republican base is still strongly behind uh, the former president. But when we ask whether or not Americans want Trump to be president again, 21 percent of Republicans do not. So that's one in five. When we take a look at whether or not President Trump did something wrong, we ask the question of whether he did something illegal, whether he did something um, unethical but not illegal, or whether he did uh, nothing wrong at all. 53 percent. That's a majority of Republicans think he did something wrong. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they think that he did something illegal. And then in terms of um, whether or not the investigations are fair or they are a witch hunt, um, he does still have strong support among Republicans, but there is some wiggle room here. Um, one thing that Lee pointed out when we were taking a look at that data is the comparison between the Republicans overall and white evangelical Christians. There may be a little bit of weakening among that group. Yeah, I would say, look, that's part of his base. And, and you know, I think when after the midterm elections, which obviously were not good for the Republicans, um, he made a comment about, well, you know, it was what the Supreme Court did in the Dobbs decision that cost us, you know, a lot of seats. And I don't think the white evangelical community took kindly to that comment. I don't know how long-lasting that is, but it, but it certainly was uh, heard by them. And I think also on the question of do you want to, to be president or not, we see a huge negative feeling among independent voters. So, look, you can win the nomination with Republicans. And if you don't have strong opponents, Donald Trump could conceivably, uh, you know, be renominated or nominated from 
again from previous time. Um, but if you're or, or he just has to win a plurality like yeah, he did yeah, last time yes. too. Right. They don't yeah. even have to be weak opponents. They just no. have to be opponents plural. I think, yeah. and that and that and that may be what's happening. But when you get to the general election, and who knows where the Democrats are going to be in Joe Biden and all those issues, uh, but. You know, independents, you need to get a lion's share of the independents. And right now, by almost two to one, independents don't want to see him to be president again. And the more he runs for the Republican base, the less he's going to be popular with independents. So right now, there's a little bit of a conundrum there. Well, we turn now from the state of our democracy to the longevity of Americans. According to federal officials, the life expectancy in the United States has declined not just over the past year, but over the past two years. So what's behind this decline? We are joined today by Dr. Scott Cush, medical researcher and life expectancy expert at the Life Expectancy Group. Doctor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here today. So provide us with a baseline, please. How does the life expectancy of Americans differ with other similar nations? Well, uh, not well. <laughs> um, we, we are currently ranked 47th in the world, um, which is not a great place to be for a, a country that spends the absolute most out of all countries in the world. So, um, it, you know, we there, there are lots of factors that uh, might make us different, but uh, if you're spending the most money, you don't often like to see that you're ranked 47. <laughs> it's not a good place to be. So what happened that we dropped from 78.8 in 2019 to 76 in 2021? I think everybody's minds probably go, oh, pandemic. Is it that yeah. simple? Uh, well, part of it is um, because when you see such a significant drop in a short period of time, it takes a lot to move data like this. Um, because previous to this, up until 2019, we had we had basically been seeing small incremental changes up and then in the last couple of years um, leading up to 2019, small incremental changes down. And when I say incremental, I mean 0.1 of a year down, 0.1 of a year down, and then 0.1 up from 2000 to 2016. But when you move several years all at once, it, it does take something of large order to do that. And the pandemic is what is the cause of that. And it, the, the numbers are still not fully out. We're still getting new data and it's still showing increases uh, uh, in death and excess death rates. One of the most staggering statistics for me was that between 2019 and 2020, the mortality rate for children ages between one and 19 increased by 10.7%. My mind was blown when I read that. Why? Yeah. Uh, I mean, child and adolescent mortality rates in the United States rose by 20% between 2019 and 2020 one. So that's the largest increase in 50 years. This actually should be the headline everywhere because um, nothing is more concerning than to see mortality rates go up in this area because we generally don't see that. Um, that is something that has always been incrementally decreasing over time. And the alarming spike in this is likely due to, uh, again, multifactorial. We, we've seen a lot of increase in deaths due to uh, motor vehicle accidents, uh, homicides, uh, suicides, probably drug overdoses is one of the most prominent factors here. 
And uh, that's really concerning. We, you know, kids in our modern day era has, has been seen always as the safe, the safe haven, the, the good times, the golden era. And that wasn't always the case. Um, you know, as we see a reversal in this, it's a huge warning sign that tells us, are we heading back to a time in which childhood isn't the safest time? Um, and just to give you some context, um, I mean, age 10 is your safest year in your entire life. Um, there's lots of theories of why that might be. You get past some of the disease processes uh, and infections from early age, and you're still under the safe haven of your parents' watchful eye before you uh, advance into the dangerous teenage years. Um, so, but age zero to one is a similar risk level to someone in their early 50s in the United States. So, well, why is that? Well, mortality in childhood um, has always had some elevation um, in the first few years. And when I say some elevation, that is a very friendly way of of describing it now, but in the past, uh, if you if you were to look back, say, oh gosh, uh, in 1900, for instance, you would expect that only approximately 60% of children would make it to adulthood. I mean, that's that's very difficult to conceptualize now um, because we don't live in that world. Now, 99% reach adulthood, um, but it's important because. It's sort of like the pandemic. It's been 100 years since the last pandemic. It's easy to forget what it was like because the people who were alive during that era mostly are gone. When you see childhood mortality rates rise, you have to take that as a warning sign of, wait, let's look back. You know, we lived in a different world when child mortality was really high. And just also really important uh, with respect to that is how it impacts life expectancy. because. Uh, well, you could have 70 individuals at age 75 that suddenly get to live a year longer, okay? That has the same impact on life expectancy as one child that dies in the first year of life. So there's a, a, an enormous skew that comes from early death and how that impacts life expectancy. And I think it's always really important to understand these are some of the most critical uh, things with respect to public health and medicine is watching how our young ones do. And it has a, um, you know, it has an emotional toll that is unmatched, um, but also has a profound impact on life expectancy in general. Why is any of this happening in countries that are like us in every other way, like Canada or the UK or France or Sweden or South Korea? Um, it's multifactorial, um, first of all. This is a very complex area as you have multiple countervailing processes at work. On the one hand, we have marvelous things at work in the United States. We, we do more for our preemies. <clears throat> we do more for end organ failure and transplants than pretty much any other country. However, we are unique in many other aspects. And our, our neighbors to the north are a great um, comparison because their life expectancies are several years higher. Well, wait a second. We live right next door. We we spend more money than you. How is it possible that you're living longer? Well, let's start by one of the most obvious uh, factors, and that is if you put an average Canadian um, next to an average American, the first thing you're going to notice is weight. So we have a pandemic 
uh, or epidemic of, of obesity in this country. And obesity comes along with increased rates in cancer uh, due to inflammation in the body, increased rates of diabetes, heart disease, even osteoarthritis. I mean, it, it basically plays a huge part uh, in our lives. And 42% of Americans are now in the obesity category. So you don't see that with Canadians. So this is just one aspect. Now, there's another big aspect. Another elephant in the room is universal health care. Because the drop in life expectancy was not an even hit in this country, meaning it hit some ethnicities and races much harder than it did others. For instance, Hispanics going into, into the pandemic had an advantage, a huge advantage over um, everyday Americans. In other words, being Hispanic in the United States carried a higher life expectancy. It still does, but uh, by no means what the advantage was pre-pandemic. And so universal health care would address this divide. And, and there is a divide of access in the United States. So um, it's really important to understand that there are so many factors, the, the factors of weight, the factors of universal health care, that the um, heterogeneity of our population, the, the divide in wealth, the increase in poverty and, um, and systemic racism. Doctor, before we let you go, um, we tend to, when possible, like to end off on a positive note. Is there a silver lining in all of this? There is. Um, we are wonderful as a species to find solutions. And the biggest takeaway I want to have here is that we have had profound gains since 1900. Actually, since 1850 in the United States, life expectancy has risen over 100%. In the whole history of, 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 of the world, life expectancy was uh, up until the 1700s, 1800s was about 30 to 35 years. And then we went from 1850 in the United States from 35 years to pre-pandemic 79. That's, that is unheard of for a, a period of time of just over 100 years. And there's actually a great book I'd suggest called Extra Life, written by Stephen Johnson, um, that talks about we've got an extra life out of this. So that's the positive. And so we need to know that in the context, because when you see life expectancy dropping, you can kind of forget, oh, wait a second, we've got an extra 20,000 days that we've gained in the last hundred so years. So, right. Well, Dr. Scott Cush, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, he's a medical researcher and life expectancy expert at the Life Expectancy Group. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you about a difficult topic, uh, but certainly uh, he brought a lot of light to this and it's good to understand all of this data in context. And that's what we try and do is put data in context. And I think you've uh, really helped us with that. So thanks uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So in our weekly uh, podcast, we now turn to a part that I think is really, really interesting this week. And the question was, do you personally believe there's intelligent life on other planets or not? And this is uh, questions that were asked by CBS News in 2017. Uh, nationally, 56% of Americans think there is intelligent life in uh, other planets, not just not just here. And some are questioning that, of course. Uh, um, but the, the answer, most people, uh, a minority of people, 34%, 
say no, and 11% say just, I, I don't know, I uh, don't have a clue. And when and when were we going to sort of make contact with these uh, other outwardly people or whatever they are? Uh, most think it's going to be somewhere down the road, uh, maybe in your lifetime, 14%, the next 100 years, 23%. So this is not imminent. Uh, but nonetheless, people think that it certainly uh, is well within the realm of possibility and that intelligent life does exist on other planets. And I think, yes, I'm with the majority. So what you say, folks? But I, as much as I hate to admit this, this is a huge topic of conversation between uh, my husband and me. He is a firm and a very strong believer, as is Casey. I know that we're going to come to Casey in a second that there is life on other planets. Um, I grudgingly do need to agree with that. Um, I'm happy and I'm fine with that as long as that intelligent life stays away from us. Um, and so I'm going to leave it at that. But Casey, do you want to jump in? Well, I have two thoughts on this. Is that, you know, in all the sci-fi movies in which they discuss the government letting people know that there's aliens, the thought line was always, no, people will panic. And yet... The Navy and the armed forces delivered a report saying they have like, what, 300 viewings of unidentified flying objects and people were just like, meh. We knew that. <laughs> That's a scientific term, right, Casey? Scientific term, meh. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like there's probably, there, there could 100% be a report that they just haven't released about already betting in contact with other worlds. But also... All you have to do is take a look at like dumbest criminals to just want to have hope that we are not the smartest in oh. the universe. <laughs> uh, and Jay, I bet you can, I, I'm going to anticipate your answer here. I think you're going to say, yes, there probably is, but doesn't have to resemble us at all. It could be an entirely different, I was going to say entirely different animal, but you know what I mean. You are, you are correct. I think that uh, the supposition that, uh, and this, I mean, science fiction is no fun if it's like, if intelligent life is a oozing slime or something. I mean, who wants to make a movie about that? Um, but intelligent life could be something other than carbon-based, for instance, could be silicon-based or something. I do think, so I think that there's, there probably is. The universe is vast beyond any imagination. Uh, so, yes, someplace in the universe there is. That being said, the universe is vast beyond any imagination. And for any life form, no matter how advanced beyond where we are, to actually contact any other life form in a space that is so vast, um, I, I think is very, 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 very far-fetched. So I think we're probably not alone, but I think we're going to always be alone because we're not going to last forever. You know, the earth explodes in a couple billion years and we'll, we'll be on Pole Hub episode I, 2 billion four. Uh, but uh, yeah, so there, yeah, you're rightly. Uh, uh, that was my, you got me. Yeah. Well, if there are, we, we certainly hope that those extraterrestrials are Yankee fans. Uh, see, that's what we're not going to get from this. But anyway, that's it for this poll. do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Ethan Hollis and Eve Fisher. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you have questions for us, tweet them at us at Marist Poll. 
Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Pole Hub, and with any luck, it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Pole Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcast app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.